Welcome to the Grow Kinder podcast, where thought leaders in education explore how social-emotional learning can help us navigate society's most pressing challenges and create a kinder, more compassionate world. Brought to you by Committee for Children. It's your host, Dr. Tia Kim, and today I'm really thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Mylene Duong. She's an accomplished researcher and has been funded by the Institute of Education Sciences and the National Institutes of Health and has published over 40 peer-reviewed journal articles and books. So it's such a great honor to have her. So thanks for joining us on Grow Kinder, Mylene. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Tia. Great. So let's just dive into it. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you really began to focus on the impact adult social emotional competency and well-being can have on children's outcomes. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I was at the University of Washington, which is just here in town for eight years. And I started out doing work on social, emotional, and behavioral outcomes for students in schools, but I was really interested in helping kids thrive socially and emotionally and academically. And I started out by developing a ton of programs for kids, you know, programs to prevent depression and substance use, programs to help them develop growth mindsets and emotion regulation skills. And then as those start, those programs started to be implemented in the field, it became really clear to me and it became really clear to a lot of other people that there was a big gap and that gap was attending to the adults in these kids' lives, right? Like we know that kids don't grow up in a vacuum and that kids who attend healthy schools with healthy adults grow up to be healthier children. And so that's when I really started to focus on educator well-being and figuring out what it is we need to do in order to help them thrive professionally and also personally, and how we can support them in doing that in a way that is authentic, and that honors their experience and their unique circumstances while still drawing on what we know from the research literature to be effective. Great. You know, what I've always really appreciated is your background and your experience and knowledge and education as a clinical psychologist. So can you just talk a little bit about how that background has really helped you in thinking about this work too and thinking about adult social emotional competency? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I think some of our listeners might not know that this is kind of a funny job for a clinical psychologist to be doing, you know, because clinical psychologists are a therapist that you might see, or they, if they do research, they do research on clinical disorders like depression or anxiety. Actually, I was accepted into a clinical program, but my my grad school advisor was half developmental and half clinical, and I just did the research that was interesting to me. I didn't I didn't realize it wasn't clinical research until later on. But you know that background has really helped me to think about the way that the two worlds of SEL, which lives really in developmental psychology, and mental health, which lives in clinical psychology, really overlap and can talk to each other in ways that they're not talking to each other now. So we have like 
in schools, this multi-tiered systems of support, right? Where the foundation is these tier one interventions, which is often SEL, and everything above that is considered tier two interventions. And that's often much more targeted towards clinical disorders, specific clinical disorders like ADHD or depression or anxiety. And it's clear to me that this isn't really a model that's going to work for schools. That's how it developed in the academic world. But we really need to come up with a much more integrated model that allows schools to take one approach throughout the all three tiers of the MTSS triangle. Great. Yes. I love the integration of those two thoughts. So I don't know if you remember this, Mylene, but I think the first time we ever met, you came to our office and we went to the Korean restaurant down the street and we had lunch. Bamboo. I remember yes. that. It and was we delicious. Had, yeah. And we had lunch and we were just talking about our work and your evaluation. And I think what really um, stood out for me in our discussion was at the time, your focus on evaluating programs, but really looking at it through the lens of racial and ethnic differences and whether or not programs were having differential impacts on different subgroups. That's always really stuck out to me because, you know, I have, think I have similar interests as you in terms of educational equity. So I know you've done a lot of work in that area. Can you just tell us a little bit about your work in this area and why it's really interesting to you? Yeah. So equity, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I think that was pretty early on in my career. I don't even know if I was a faculty at University of Washington yet. Equity is the whole reason that I got interested in education. And I've been doing equity work, I would say, even longer than I've been doing work in SEL. And why is it interesting to me? I guess it's interesting to me from a personal level, I'm a Vietnamese-American immigrant, and my mom grew up in rural Vietnam, and she only ever had a third grade education, and that was because when she was growing up, girls were expected to stay home and help work the fields and not go to school. And so when I was growing up, you know, she really emphasized to me the value of a good education. And I really believed in that. And I still really believe in that. And I think that at its best, education can lift families out of poverty and can allow them to live the life that they truly want. And, you know, I worked hard in school, but I also had teachers who believed in me, even when I didn't speak English fluently. And in high school, I went to, you know, it was like the poorest performing school in the district. And we had like a college going rate of like 25% or something like that. And somebody somewhere had decided that kids attending schools like that needed to get access to SAT tutoring. And they actually came to our school and provided that to us for free. And I took advantage of that. And then I ended up getting a full scholarship to UCLA, but that was only because UCLA had an educational outreach program. And I got a letter in the mail that was like, hey, did you know that there's such a thing as a Regent scholarship? Like, here's how you would apply for it. I would have had no idea that that existed and my parents would have had no idea that existed. But somebody somewhere had started this educational outreach program in order to even the playing field for kids like me. And these opportunities genuinely changed the course of my life and my career. And so I think about working on equity now as my way of paying it forward. 
I know that's a very long answer to how did you get interested in this? No, I mean, I think that's fantastic. I think, you know, thank you for sharing that lived experience, you know, coming from immigrant parents myself. I think I resonate with that ringing of, you know, education is super important. So that really resonates with me as well. And I also like how you point out that although we have a lot of work to do, thinking about systemic barriers um, to equitable mm-hmm. education, that you gave some really good concrete examples of how maybe some of those barriers were lessened for you. So I think that's great. So just continuing that thread, you know, this past year, so many people in the education community started or reinvigorated their efforts to advance anti-bias and anti-racist work in their schools. But I imagine for many educators, it's very difficult to know where to start. And in fact, we get that, we hear that a lot from educators that work with us. So, you know, what would you say to educators out there who want to start doing this work, but they don't, they're not quite sure how to start? Like, what would be your advice to them? I mean, I think the first thing I would say is kudos to you. Kudos to you for wanting to start this work. Kudos to you for reinvigorating this and kudos to you for facing something that might be really difficult. And at the same time, like I totally understand why this work is hard, right? Because it is systemic and it is pervasive. And that's the problem. It's just built into the way that we do things and it's baked into what we teach and how we teach it. And even what we define as the skills that we want our kids to have. So this past year, I mean, we've had just a major reckoning as a society, and we've come to realize that the systems that we've built is designed for some students and not others. But it's hard to know what to do about that, right? Because it's so big. It's the whole system. And there's this idea that I come back to from David Foster Wallace. You know, he says that fish don't know that they're in water. And the idea basically is that the most obvious and the most important realities of our lives are the ones that are hardest for us to see. So for those of you out there who are starting or restarting this work, I think the first thing is to start by building awareness of that water. So just like with social emotional learning, we say that self-awareness is the foundation of regulation, of self-regulation of, of relationship skills. You know, the same goes for equity. So we have to start building an awareness of, of our own cultural lens, how that cultural lens may be similar to or different from our students' lenses. And the most important thing is that we have to start seeing the water. We have to take a critical look at the decisions that we make, the system that we've built that goes from the curriculum we pick to the policies we write. And I think understanding how pervasive this is and understanding the spots where this happens, we can start to tackle it one at a time. Wow, I really like that analogy of seeing the water. So how do you, is there like concrete strategies or advice you could give educators and how can they, how they can actually start seeing the water? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways to do it, but actually my one of my favorite ways to do it is to do an equity audit. I mean, cities and schools have already started to do this with a lot of their policies. They might call it an equity analysis or something else, but you can actually apply it to any number of things in the educational experience. You can do an equity audit of your classrooms, your, phys- your actual physical spaces. 
You can do an audit of the books that you choose for the library. You can audit your math curriculum, and you can even, you know, systematically audit the interactions between teachers and students. So what it is is just like a systematic observation of some aspect of the educational experience. And the first step to an audit is always to just observe as objectively as possible. To help with that, I recommend keeping notes or videotapes or some sort of record keeping that will keep it systematic and not rely so much on human memory. And then the second step is then to do that same observation again, but to adopt a specific lens. So, for example, you might audit your classroom. And you might pick a student who is you're struggling to connect with, and think about how they might experience that classroom. Or you could think, what would this classroom feel like if I were a Latinx student in this school? What would this room feel like if I were a parent coming in for a parent-teacher conference, and I don't speak English and I only speak Tagalog? What about a student whose gender is non-binary? How might they experience your classroom? And then you use the results of these reflections to make changes to bring more of those marginalized groups to the table, you know. And it's really the making the change that is the hard part, right? The audit itself really would take a half hour or less, but just like everything in SEL and in life and in teaching, you know, it's. The audit is not a one and done. It's a process of continuously observing and reflecting, and then making improvements. But I really think that the, this framework of of doing an equity explicit audit is one of the the best tools we have to make equity happen in our schools. Great! I really like that equity audit framework and really thinking about it from walking into your classroom and thinking about it from different perspectives and how they they would feel. So I know I hear a lot from you. We have lots of conversations about how important adults are in equity work, and you know I think there's a lot of research that would also support that notion. So why do you think it's so important to start with adults and particularly educator training, and why that's so important and vital to anti bias and anti racist work in our in education? Yeah, I really think that what we're seeing with equity is the same thing that we saw with the entire field of SEL, right? So when SEL first started, we started with teaching students skills. We started with developing student-facing curriculum, but then we discovered that when we do that, when we only exclusively focus on the students, it can only have limited effects without involving the adults. You know, teachers who really deeply understand SEL really can make a lesson come alive. And SEL is not—it doesn't start and end with just the lesson, right? You don't just do your 20 minutes a day. We, in order for it to be effective, we need teachers to reinforce and to coach and to bring it into their math lessons and the books that they're reading. And these things are harder for us to script, and they rely on teachers being able to spot these teachable moments. The other thing we learned is that kids are always watching, and they're impacted by what we say and do, what we model, sometimes even more than what we tell them to do. 
So it's hard. I think the reason that we start with with adults when we talk about equity is that it's hard for us to teach something that we don't deeply understand. And I think that's the reason why a lot of the equity work that we've seen is about first making sure that the educators can take a critical look at the education system and at their own practice that you know they're able to see the water that they're in because that's the same water that their kids are in. And then we want them to start asking, you know, what about this environment is working? Who is it working for and who it's not working for? I think the other big reason why we need to start with the adults is that there's a lot about the systems that kids don't directly interact with. So for example, students don't pick their textbooks. They don't write their dress codes. They do not write discipline policies. But this is all part of the system that they're in. And we need the adults to recognize what may or may not be working about these aspects of the system if we're going to change it. Really good recommendations. It just reminds me, you know, I was recently having a conversation around parenting, you know, and how how do you have conversations with your own kids about race and racism. And, you know, one of the things I was reading about and and discussing with this other person was that as a parent, you have to do the same thing, right? You have to kind of check your own biases and you have to be comfortable in understanding the topic well to be able to have those conversations with your kids well. And I think it's the same for all adults when they're working with kids and students. So I know we've had discussions around this too, just in general professional development and training in education and how some of it can be really good, but sometimes it can be ineffective. So what do you think are some effective components to ensure that any kind of training related to anti-bias or anti-racism or equity work can be successful? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's kind of a big one. And when I think about like what makes teacher training effective, I kind of think of two buckets of things. There's the what, Like, what do we teach? What are the effective components of the training? And then there's like the how, which is what are the learning experiences that teachers need to go through in order to really integrate and sustain these practices? So I think in terms of like the what, the first step is really about building awareness, right? And that means self-awareness. So what are my cultural lenses? social awareness, what are other people's cultural lenses, what are my students' lenses, but also system awareness, right? So there's there's an element there of understanding the history of the education system and how that came about and how it continues to impact the very fabric of our daily interactions with students. So I'm reading this book, CAST, and in it, Isabel Wilkerson, she's she's not talking about education specifically. She's just talking about big social systems in general. But she compares it to an old house, which really resonates with me because we bought a house that's that was built 100 years ago, and we've had to do some renovations on it. Old houses just have a lot of quirks. You know, like we make this joke that none of the walls actually meet at right angles. And there's this vent that we've got in the dining room that is half covered with brick. And, you know, there are just these things that don't make sense. 
And, you know, I think like, like you can't start working on that house. Like I can't renovate it without understanding the history of construction for the past hundred years, right? Like I need to know that the insulation was put in when they still use asbestos and that before the late seventies, they still used lead paint and then they painted over that lead paint. So we're going to take off any paint. We got to be sure to be aware of the lead. And so I think that the same thing kind of applies with the education system and that we really should be aware of how that system was built, who it was built for, and the way that we've kind of in these, this patchwork way tried to modify and fix it over time. And those solutions may have been effective in some ways and not others where they have made, created like weird oddities in our system. And understanding how all of the history of that, I think it's really going to help us understand what, how it still manifests in the problems that we see today. And I think the other part, you know, once you've got that, that foundational self and social and systems awareness, it's about actually doing something different. And this is actually the part that is most exciting to me because I'm, it's not that you can just skip right to it, but I am just such a doer that this is typically what I focus on. What I've seen like during the last 10 years of doing equity work is that schools are beginning to get past that foundational awareness and they're starting to ask like, okay, now what, what do we do? What do we do about our policies? What do we do about our curriculum? And that's super exciting because I think that we actually know a good deal about what the practices are that can create equitable and inclusive schools. You know, and I, we probably don't have the time to like go into all of it today, but I think there's just a couple common themes that have arise in the literature. So a lot of it, I think it's about understanding the context of students' lives and then connecting with that. So this kid is a student in our classroom, but they're also a child and a human, and they have a whole life and a whole history that we as educators sometimes aren't privy to. And sometimes those lives and histories are completely different from ours. Then it's about, as a teacher, connecting what we're teaching to what's going on in their lives and bringing in their experiences, their interests, and their identity, and most importantly, their voice to the classroom. You know, there are a lot of specific practices out there, but I will just say that I think at the foundation of it all is it's the relationship and that culturally responsive teaching doesn't happen without caring and without empathy. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of students from marginalized groups show up to school not feeling like that space is really for them. You know, they don't feel a sense of ownership and belonging there, and they don't feel seen or heard by the adults in the school. And if that's not there, then the engagement and the learning is just not going to happen. Yeah, I think this is all really great. Do you have any specific examples, either in your own research or just working with different schools like a concrete example of how an educator or a school has really shown up as being really aware and, and made sort of a concrete change in, in a classroom or a school building. Do you have like an example of that that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, I think there are probably lots of different examples of people doing great work at all different levels. And without naming any names, I would just say that one of the school's 
that I partnered with, one of the school systems I partnered with for a number of years, completely rewrote their discipline policy. And, you know, it took a few years actually for them to do that because they wanted to be thoughtful and responsive to the community. So they brought in representatives, obviously, from, from the different schools, administrators and teachers, but they also brought in community members. So they brought in parents, they brought in out-of-school providers, they brought in some of their students, you know, and they took a look at their curriculum. They said, how can we make this equitable? What about this is offensive? What about it is biased? And it's, it's not just that they, they did this, but the way that they did it by bringing those voices to the table, I think is what made the changes really effective. That's a great example. I love bringing in particularly community voices and family voices. I think that's really important and sometimes overlooked. So listening to all of this, your passion for the work, understanding that it's complex and it could be difficult at times just to think about it. And I know you've put in a ton of work in the midst um, this past year of a pandemic, which I think has turned things around for a lot of people. How are you being kind to yourself during all of this? So, I mean, I think this year, this last year has probably been hard for a lot of people. And I think equity work in and of itself by its very nature is can get very emotional. I think there are lots of highs that come with equity work. And there's also a lot of difficult moments in equity work. And actually, I think the challenge for me is how to both be kind to myself and to be kind to others in this journey. So this last week, my husband and I were driving back from California and we're listening to the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, you know, in the car. At one point, we got into this heated discussion about it. You know, we were disagreeing about one of the points in the book. And he, he says to me, like, you get really heated when we're talking about this. And on the one hand, I'm like, you're darn right I get heated. You know, this is personal. It's been going on for a long time. I have a right to be heated. I'm heated because you're not hearing me. And, you know, and on the other hand, like, I could tell that he was like a little bit afraid to speak his mind because I was getting kind of angry at him. And that this wasn't the open and honest dialogue that I wanted us to have about this book. And, you know, in those moments when I'm like, man, what do I do here? You know, I come back to this idea that I actually learned in therapist school, and it's called holding the dialectic. This idea that two things that seem to be contradictory on the surface can both be true. And that the work is about holding that dialectic as to stay in that space where things are muddy and confusing. And you don't know what the right answer is. So in the end, like in, in those moments, and when I have other difficult moments in equity work, I just try to remember that I'm human, that my husband is a human, <laughs> that the other person that I'm talking to about equity is also human, and we're going to make mistakes. And they don't have all the answers and neither do I. But I think the flip side of that is that I found that if you stick with it, if you really lean into those moments, even and you don't run away from them, even when it gets hard, even when feelings get hurt, even when conflict happens, that if you stick it out, you really do come out on the other end and that your relationship is stronger for it. 
I actually think it's impressive, Mylene, that you got your husband to listen to the book, How to Be Anti-Racist, and actually had a discussion <laughs> around it. I think that's pretty impressive. I don't think a lot of folks would have that conversation, but I do think it's a reflection. He's used to it from me. <laughs> Probably. I do think it's a reflection of what's kind of going on in our society that, you know, I think one positive is that people are starting to have more conversations and dialogue around it, which I think is super important. And it's just what we were talking about earlier about a lot of educators and schools and districts really wanting to reamp this work. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us in terms of thinking about this work? Is there other ways you're kind to yourself <laughs> that aren't so academic, I guess? <laughs> I love how your, your thinking of how to be kind is to do more reading. <laughs> Man, I thought it was successful in bringing that out of the realm of academia and into relatable, no? You know, it's about, it's about recognizing our humanity, you know? It's about yeah, forgiving for sure. ourselves for our mistakes. <laughs> And holding the dialectic, too. Yes. Also holding the dialectic. I know, but that's an academic term. (laughs) It is an academic term. I know it. Not like walk my dog, go on long hikes, you know. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're so right. I'm not good at giving that kind of advice. (laughs) But all of those things will work. (laughs) Walking your dog, going on long hikes. Those are great ways to be kind to yourself. So I really appreciate the conversation, Mylene. You know, we're very appreciative of you joining us on Grow Kinder. It was, you know, wonderful to delve into this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me here, Tia. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Mylene. It's been great. And I hope everyone has learned more about the work we're doing with educators. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. For more episodes and information, visit growkinderpodcast.org. And while you're there, we'd love to hear more about you and what you think of the Grow Kinder podcast. Until next time, be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Stitcher.